1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today for the entire hour, Joe Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winning economist and professor at Columbia University. Last week, we taped a long interview with him covering all kinds of topics. Stick around, that's today's show.
0: I kid my students, I say, if you came in with those kinds of forecasting errors, you would not get a passing grade.
1: Professor, thanks for being here. It sounds like you're having a pretty busy summer. It is. Very fun. Okay, so Rewriting the Rules of the American Economy, An Agenda for Growth and Shared Prosperity is the full title of this paper from the Roosevelt Institute. I want to start with the quote that you have on page 15 because I think it reflects what you've spent a lot of your career doing and analyzing and studying, and it also, I think, deeply informs the report itself. Here's the quote. Our institutionalist approach is based on two simple economic observations, rules matter and power matters. Can you just talk about what that means?
0: Yes. This is a marked departure from the way economics has been developed in, say, the last couple hundred years where there was an attempt to look underneath the institutions to say, look, it we don't, doesn't make any difference whether there's unions or not, sharecropping or not, uh, how you run the economy. It's basically the laws of demand and supply that determine
1: outcomes, outcomes.
0: Every, every aspect of outcomes, inequality, economic performance. So if you want to know where the economy is going, just look at demand and supply, technology, um, that's the sort of thing. What we are arguing in this report is that there's a lot more uh, that determines how the economy performs. Uh, It's very intuitive, uh, but I think actually very important. For instance, if you have weak labor unions, power matters, that is to say there's a bargaining relationship between workers and the company that they work for. And the outcome of that bargaining relationship is going to be less favorable to workers. If you change the rules of the game to make it easier for firms to relocate abroad and then bring the goods into the country, then again, the bargaining power of workers is lowered. The workers say, we want a higher wage, and the firms say, if we were to give you a higher wage, it would no longer be profitable for us to stay here. We're going to go someplace where there, there are no unions, where there are no worker rights, where there are no environmental protections. And under the new free, free trade rules, we can bring those goods back. And the workers have no choice, uh, especially in an era where there's a high level of unemployment. So. Another aspect of the rules of the game, as we – is how things fit together. If you've weakened unions, you've extended globalization, and then you have a macroeconomic policy that results in a high level of unemployment, all those work together in combination to lead to lower wages, A little bit of evidence of this kind of theory is the fact that in the last 33rd of a century or so, the productivity of workers has doubled, but wages have stagnated. Now, historically, wages and productivity move together, but that has not been happening. And our interpretation of one of the reasons it's not been happening, one of the important reasons, is that there's been a change in the rules of the game that go in a, against the interest of ordinary workers. And we argue, actually,
1: against the interest of the economy as a whole. Yeah, so the report does read as if you're trying to convince, I guess, what you might call the neoliberal camp rather than, I guess, a sort of a laissez-faire conservative camp, which you probably aren't going to get anyways, right? So for our listeners, I guess I'll explain this a little more because I think you just touched on this. The neoliberal view goes, I think, something like this. Markets, for all their imperfections, are pretty good at creating wealth um, and that we should leave them alone to the extent that we can, and then you use tax policy, spending and transfer policy after the outcomes have been determined um, in order to make sure that the gains from the market forces are distributed fairly widely. Your argument is that actually – there should be intervention before we get to that stage. In other words, that there are ways to tweak, according to what you just said, the rules so that even before we get to the sort of post-outcome distribution phase that the gains are already starting to be shared. So I guess what's what's the macroeconomic argument for why you're right and for why the neoliberal camp misses something? And I will I will inject very quickly – that I think maybe a massive exception would have to be made for the financial sector, which has sort of clearly shown its need to have some kind of framework around it. But otherwise, um, the neoliberal camp sounds like it makes some pretty good points. So I guess what what's your argument for, for convincing them?
0: Well, I, one of the fundamental differences in perspectives is that uh, the old view had it that if you wanted to have more equality, the only way to do it is – to impose taxes, which slow down the economy, and therefore there was a trade-off. The Oaken
1: uh, trade-off, right?
0: Between inequality and economic growth. Arthur Oaken, who was chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, distinguished professor at Columbia, uh, made that a central point of his book called The Big Trade-Off. Uh, more recent evidence shows that that's not true that is to say, we can have both more growth and greater equality. And this is not just a left-wing view. This has become a mainstream view. The IMF and the advice that it's been giving countries all over uh, the world, based on its own deep research, is that countries with more equality perform better. They grow better. They're more stable. And The theories that we talk about in rewriting the rules provide an explanation of that. For instance, if you have rules that lead firms to be more long-term, to think about long-term investments in their workers, in their plant, their equipment, and research, then the economy is going to grow uh, better. Uh, If you have rules of the game that encourage short-termism, Uh, focusing on not just the quarterly returns, but increasingly the nanosecond uh, returns, uh, you're not going to make those long-term investments. And then there's a connection between one of the important aspects of long-term investments is investments in people. And that's the link between productivity, growth, and equality. So what we detail here is the many, many ways in which the – creating a more equal society is supportive of creating a better-performing economy.
1: Okay, I want to get into some of the specifics of the report. It's about 100 pages, so we can't get to Mm -hmm. all of it, of course, but I want to talk about three in particular – Uh, One is to delve a little more deeply into the labor market and what should be done there. One is the financial sector. And then the third is monetary policy. And I actually want to start with the latter, so monetary policy, because it's so immediately relevant now with the possibility of rate hikes coming up pretty soon. Um, The paper itself advocates that the inflation side of the dual mandate should be de-emphasized and that the full employment side of the dual mandate should be – Uh, should be further emphasized, should be really, should take prominence. This is intriguing because the more common, I think, uh, recommendation is actually that the Fed should ditch the full employment side and focus on inflation. And essentially, the reason there is that the central bank can influence inflation a little more. That's the perception, right? And that essentially the Phillips curve would take care of the rest. So if you target inflation and then the structural side isn't something that the central bank can do anything about, so if unemployment drops too low, inflation goes high, then fine. Inflation is the signal. And then the reverse is also true. If unemployment is very high, inflation dips below the target, then the central bank has to stimulate. The report here takes a different approach. It says that actually, no, full employment should take prominence. Uh, Can you take us through the argument?
0: Well, first of all, let me say – that's particularly relevant in situations like today when the problem is not inflation. The real right. problem is is unemployment. I mean, there could be other situations where inflation is the problem, but you can see very clearly the nature of the, uh, of the uh, confusion because in the European Central Bank, their charter mandates them to focus only on inflation even when there's no inflation even when the unemployment problem becomes central. So what we're trying to argue is you need a balanced approach. In the years of the time that that the ECB was founded, uh, the the basic ideas that have influenced monetary policy for a very long time was that if the central bank kept inflation low and stable, there would be strong economic growth and a stable economy. Now, that view has been totally discredited. Uh, The crisis of 2008 provides the strongest piece of evidence. In the years before the crisis of 2008, the central banks did a very good job of keeping inflation low and stable. But their focus on inflation distracted their attention from other key issues like financial stability. Uh, So what we now know absolutely for sure is that a focus on inflation is not sufficient for high growth and for economic stability. Uh, Now, there's also weakening evidence about the stability of the Phillips curve itself Mm -hmm. and a particular concern that in the past central banks have had this uh, almost obsession with inflation so that they – as the expression had, you had to shoot inflation uh, before you could see that white of the eyes. So every time there would be a glimmer of wages going up, they would tighten monetary policy and the economy would slow down. The result of that has been that the average level of unemployment is higher than it would normally have otherwise have been. That means there's going to be downward pressure on wages because workers obviously are going to be sensitive to their job opportunities. If there are no jobs out there, they're not going to have much bargaining power. That means over the period in which this inflation obsession dominated central banks, not a surprise that wages have not done very well. So when we – I mentioned before that there's this anomalous – behavior, productivity going up over the last 35 years, uh, and wages stagnating,
1: that's one of the contributing factors. Okay. So there have been a couple of ideas or several ideas really in the aftermath of the crisis that I think would serve to accomplish exactly that, to raise the prominence of the full employment side of the mandate. One of them is nominal GDP targeting. Another would be the possibility of raising the inflation target. Uh, What's your preference?
0: Well, my preference is actually focusing on unemployment. So long, Changing
1: uh, the mandate itself.
0: Well, in the United States, you have to remember that we have a mandate, which is employment growth, uh, you know, unemployment, employment growth and inflation and now also financial stability. Now, that makes the task of the central bank uh, more difficult because it has to look at, at all these factors. Uh, but that's. Uh, the nature of good macroeconomic management. You have to adapt what you do uh, to the circumstances. You know, the U.K. has also a more subtle uh, approach than the ECB. Uh, The uh, U.K. has an approach where the government sets the inflation target year by year, and then the central bank is supposed to respond to that and implement the policy. Well, when you think about it that way, what they're doing is, in a way, what I just uh, said, if they do it right, what they say is, here's the configuration of our economy today. Um, we could withstand much higher inflation today than we could have in a period where where uh, costs are going up. Uh, Food prices, oil prices are going up, so let's not focus as much on inflation. So, equivalent what says we can don't worry about inflation, really focus on on unemployment. That you could translate that into saying let's have a higher inflation target, but I think a better way to do it is directly onto what is the source of the problem today: unemployment.
1: Okay, let's uh, let's switch to the labor market. Um, you touched on that a little bit earlier. Uh, Some of the ideas included in the paper were higher minimum wage, laws that strengthen the bargaining ability of unions, um, legislating things like paid sick leave and uh, the overtime pay thresholds. I guess here's my question because we already talked about this a little bit. So I think, think, for instance, that the aims of the paper and the aims of people, again, in the sort of neoliberal camp are sort of similar – And the worry might be that in pursuing some of these ideas that you raise the overall cost of employing people. And so what happens is that this is great for the people who do keep their jobs and who get these better benefits – but at the same time, there might be fewer overall jobs, particularly over time if the cost of employing people sort of gradually starts to rise. Uh, this is sort of a common response to efforts to raise the minimum wage. What's your overall response to that? Uh, nonsense. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, obviously, if you raise
0: uh, the minimum wage to uh, a very
1: high level, it can be a problem but that's being contemplated now right the 15 this is sort of a slippery slope thing that happened that people talked about modestly raising the minimum wage to something like 10 or 11 now 15 bucks is sort of the is sort of the, the clarion call well, that everybody's well, making to raise it to 15 well, bucks everywhere we have to put this
0: in context of what's happened over a half a century the minimum wage today is roughly what it was a half century ago That means workers at the bottom have not gotten a pay raise for a half century. Our productivity has increased enormously. Uh, Our economy uh, has taken advantage of technology, globalization. All these things have increased productivity, and they've increased productivity pretty well across the board. It seems to me unconscionable to think that people – at the bottom, should not be sharing in some way in this increased productivity. And it seems to me almost certainly wrong that if we were to give them a really modest pay increase, you know, uh, moving from $10 to $15 – uh, bringing it up maybe uh, to a, a levels that it was only 25 years ago rather than back up to the levels it was 50 years ago. You know, it's a modest pay raise. It's not really keeping up with with where it should be. The, the economy can well withstand that. We've done it, you know, in, because the United States has all these stakes and the stakes have different minimum wages, in a way there's been a lot of, you might call it experimentation, a lot of studies, actually Hundreds of studies, and the bulk of these studies come to the view that the there is no significant adverse effect of raising the minimum wage, a reasonable amount, and when I say reasonable amount, all the numbers that are being bandied around are, are well within what I would call a reasonable amount, if you look at it in this historical uh, uh, vantage point, uh, will not have uh, a significant adverse effect. In fact, some studies say that there will be a positive effect. Uh, The reason there's a positive effect is that the major problem facing the American economy today, and this is true in other countries as well, is lack of aggregate demand. And if you put more money in the pockets of the people at the bottom, they spend that money. (laughs) People at the top save a very large fraction of their income, putting more money at the bottom, uh, uh leads to higher demand and that more jobs you know you could see the 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 importance of the focus that we have in our report on uh the discretion that the firms have is that as the discussion began about raising the minimum wage to a somewhat more livable wage uh, places like Walmart. Uh, McDonald's raised their wages by a dollar an hour without a blink, without any effect on on, on hiring. Um, they had been suppressing their wages because of their market power.
1: Okay. Now and and that's interesting. I, I guess my reading of the research was that it was a little bit more conflicted than that. So there's certainly research to support what you just said. But there's other research that also says that it should vary, that $15 as a minimum wage in New York might work where the median pay is quite high, but it might not work somewhere in like the Midwest where the median pay is a lot lower. And so it still seems to me like there is a point at which it becomes too much and it starts to depress Employment, particularly for people who are very vulnerable and need a way into the labor market, need to get started moving up the chain. And I, I guess it seems like there's still some room for nuance there. Like we're not really sure exactly where it begins. What do you think?
0: Well, I think there there is some some disagreement about that, and 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 I feel fairly confident that certainly the country as a whole could could weather uh, actually do better with, say, a minimum wage of $12, which is what uh, Hillary Clinton has been talking about. Uh, I actually think it could do $15 an hour, but I understand that other people might disagree. And and so that's where political discourse goes. And and that's why uh, if I were a presidential candidate, I probably would come out with $12 an hour. Uh, You know, I I think uh, I've I've looked at the Puerto Rican economy and their – Incomes are a fourth of that of the United States, and they have the same minimum wage so that's an example where the minimum wage probably or almost certainly is having a negative effect so yes, you can't blithely uh, raise the minimum wage uh, but if you say if you look at the fact you know just to make the observation, look at this historically, the minimum wage today is at a fifty year low and Uh, We were actually performing very well 50 years ago, and we didn't have a high unemployment. We had a much lower unemployment rate. And now uh, to say that in a half century, a half century in which the economy has grown by multitudes, that workers can't get a 50 percent pay raise, 60 percent, 70 percent, to me is very hard to, to fathom.
1: Okay. Uh, Last part of the report, I want to talk about uh, the financial sector. One of your colleagues at the Roosevelt Institute, Mike Konzel, has written really quite persuasively, in my opinion, that Dodd-Frank was underrated as a law, that it was actually a pretty good start in terms of financial sector reform, despite maybe a lot of complexity and things like that. Um, What do you think is left to do? What what else needs to be done in order to reform uh, finance?
0: Well, there are actually a number of things. One of the things that was done in Dodd-Frank was repealed last December. Uh, It was called the Lincoln Amendment. Uh, It was a provision to say that uh, government-insured institutions, banks, should not engage in gambling uh, of the CDSs, the derivatives, those very risky products that had led to the collapse of AIG, 150 billion dollar bailout to one company. Uh they that you know say we, we, banks are in the business of lending not gambling. And with it doesn't make any sense for government to provide insurance to gambling. So I very strongly supported what, what was called the Lincoln amendment but unfortunately uh, uh the republicans managed through a uh, a special thing where these things can get go through in a, in a budgetary bill without any effective debate, they repealed that. So that's been a step backwards since uh, Dodd-Frank was passed, and that needs to be fixed. Uh, there's a whole set of uh, other issues uh, related to what we call the shadow banking system. Uh, didn't deal very effectively with with some of the Uh, problems associated with moving from the formal banking system to the shadow banking system. A third thing that um, uh, bothers me is that they had a provision uh, to curb the monopoly power of the debit card companies. Uh, They charge multiple of the cost of, of Doing a transaction, you know, when you go to a merchant, money moves from your bank account to the merchant's bank account, uh, they charge, you know, a cost, electronic cost of, of a fraction of a penny, and they charge 1, 2, 3 percent, 4 percent of the value of the transaction. Uh, clear evidence of strong monopoly power. Well, they fixed it, but only for debit cards not for credit cards. And they made one more mistake. They gave responsibility to implementing uh, that provision to the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve is very influenced by the banks. So the Federal Reserve staff recommended one rate that I thought was much too high, for, that they could charge the, 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 the firms that engage in these transactions. And then the Federal Reserve board itself doubled the recommendation of the of the staff. So the monopoly pricing continues. And I think there clearly needs to be something uh, much more uh, effective done about that.
1: Okay. But are, are you worried that from a systemic standpoint, there's still a lot of lingering risk because banks do have a lot more capital than they used to? The wholesale funding that, that was The primary cause that triggered the financial crisis in 2008, that's shrunk quite a bit, repo markets in particular. Are you a little more confident that the banking system is safer now than it was back then?
0: I think it is better now than it was then. But there are some problems Uh, that um, we still have a problem of what I'll call two interlinked banks. You know, if bank, one of the problems was when Lehman Brothers went down, remember, it led to a cascade of events that led to the threat of our whole financial system collapsing. Uh, we've done very little to deal with the problem of too interlinked, too correlated to fail banks. Uh, and so uh, I think they're, they're, we, we still have this problem of too big to fail banks. Uh, I've testified at Congress. Uh, on the issue of too big to fail banks with a whole spectrum of uh, economists from conservatives to, to liberals. And it's remarkable. It's one thing that almost everybody agreed on you know, in, the, in these panels. <laughs> the only one t- taking the other side... Nobody uh, likes
1: a bailout. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> exactly. The only one saying that too big to fail is not a problem was somebody from the banking industry. <laughs> so I think there's a broad consensus among economists that the too big to fail bank The too big to fail problem is worse than it was before because one of the ways we dealt with the 2008 crisis was to encourage bank mergers. And so now we have a more concentrated banking system, and that risk has gotten worse.
1: Okay. Uh, I solicited some listener questions for you. Uh, I picked three. One is via phone call, and the other two were written in. Uh, Let's do that now. Okay? Great. Okay. Uh, Here's the call-in question.
2: Uh, hi, my name is Aaron Gunn. I'm a recent Columbia Econ grad. My question for Professor Stiglitz is, uh, given you know his previous support for trade deals like NAFTA and his, I guess I would say measured, measured view that it was sort of a net positive for the U.S. economy and particularly from a geopolitical uh, perspective, it was strategic. I'm just curious why he and other former NAFTA proponents like Larry Summers haven't really come out to strongly endorse the TPP and sort of what the reasoning uh, behind that is. Thanks.
1: Thanks, Aaron, for your question. Uh, just to be clear for our listeners, the TPP is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's a trade deal that the U.S. is now in the process of negotiating with a number of other Pacific Rim economies, including Japan and Mexico and uh, Vietnam and Australia and a few others. Professor, I think you actually changed your mind a bit later on NAFTA, but do you want to talk about what your – I mean, I'm actually not exactly sure what your position is on uh, the TPP.
0: I, I'm, uh, I've become convinced that the TPP uh, is a bad trade deal and, and uh, strongly oppose it. Uh, I have to qualify that by saying we don't uh, – they, they've kept everything secret. And that means we don't know the details. That's one of my concerns is the way it's been negotiated it has been in secret, very undemocratic process. Corporations have been able to sit at the table, figure out what's going on, and write the rules. Uh, this is very much about writing the rules. Who's writing the rules makes a difference. And, and uh, ordinary citizens haven't been writing the rules. It's, it's, it's been the corporations. So what are the specifics about what we're fairly sure is in the agreement that I don't like? Well, this is about trade, but it's more than trade. The trade part is only a small fraction. The reason why trade itself is not so important is that tariffs have already come down to a very low level, and uh, except in very sensitive areas, and those, all the countries are very reluctant to get rid of. For instance, our, our agricultural subsidies, the United States has said it's not going to get rid of its agricultural subsidies, a major impediment uh, to international trade and, and unbalances. We, you know, it's not free trade when you're subsidizing by the billions and billions of dollars, one sector of your economy, uh, really hurting New Zealand, uh, you know, other countries who, who are agricultural producers. Um, so it's not really about trade. There are two other parts with that it's really about. One is pharmacy, pharmaceutical. Um, uh, in the United States, we reached a compromise between the generics, which work hard to make sure that people can get affordable medicine, and big pharma, which is involved in very expensive development of new drugs. And you need both. You need incentive to develop new drugs, and you need... Uh, access through low prices. And we reached a, uh, uh, an agreement, the Hatch-Waxman Act, uh, back in the 80s, uh, to the point today where about 80-some percent of all drugs are bought in the United States are generics. Uh, this agreement, from what we can uh, see, is designed to make generics more uh, have a harder time getting to the market, it's, it's upsetting that balance, and uh, it will affect other countries, but it will also affect the United States. So our cost of medicine will go up. It also was designed to restrict the instruments that governments use to try to keep drug prices down. You know, the big pharma has a lot of market power, and uh, many countries have developed techniques like. F- like uh, formularies where you have to show the drug is cost effective. In order to get on that formulary, it creates more competition among the drug companies. Doctors can still prescribe any drug that is effective and safe, but they have to give an argument for it. So the, the, uh, in previous so-called free trade agreements, not free trade agreements, but managed trade agreements, in earlier trade uh, that, that we've tried to make it uh, more difficult for generics more difficult for governments to engage in p- efforts to keep prices down uh, the other provision that has uh, gotten people very upset are these uh investor state uh, suits uh these investment the
1: dispute settlements right these th- sort of ISDSs e- right
0: exactly now. and 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 the point is that corporations can sue governments for Imposing regulations to protect the environment, workers, affirmative action, anything, health, uh, that causes them a loss of profits. The poster child of this has become Philip Morse uh, uh, in Uruguay, uh, in a agreement bre- essentially identical to the kind of agreement that we're trying to put into TPP um, under uh, – That kind of an agreement, Philip Morris is suing Uruguay because uh, Uruguay passed a law saying that on the package of cigarette, you have to disclose that it's bad for your health. Uh, And uh, it is bad for your health. They made it a little bit more graphic than we have do it in the United States. They had some pictures. It worked, by the way. It discouraged people from smoking. Uh, That's what it was intended to do. But Philip Morris says, well you've discouraged people from smoking, we lose profits. You have to pay us for our lost profits. And the legal procedures are very expensive, don't satisfy what most of us think of as the basic principles of good jurisprudence. Uh, uh, There's no appeal, there's no uh, codification or precedence. Um, The result of of this is that they're so expensive that poor Uruguay can't afford it. Now fortunately here in New York we have a, had a mayor uh, Bloomberg who is uh, passionate about health and he's using some of his money to pay for Uruguay's def- cost of defense. Now if you're a poor country like Vietnam or or uh, you can't afford that um, but what it shows is it's, again, about writing the rules, okay. that they're writing the rules to put at risk our health, our safety, to enhance corporate profits. And I think everybody thinks this, this is outrageous. Finally, there are new understandings about how markets work today so that the new evidence that has shown uh, come up, uh, you know, uh, in the last 15 years – is that today, imports coming into the United States lead to lower wages and more unemployment. You can go across each of the counties in the United States and look, where has there been a surge of imports of producing goods that they produced in that county? And in those counties, you see that unemployment is higher and wages are lower. So what that says is the the neoliberal model that you were referring to earlier says that markets work very well, very quickly. We now have very substantial evidence that in this new world after 2008, that's not true.
1: Okay, I'm going to push a little back on this one. I'm not quite going to push all the way back, maybe halfway back, because it seems to me like the TPP is something that's divided – Uh, A lot of economists and economic commentators who are trying to understand it in good faith and people who would be intellectual allies and quite a few other things disagree on this. So to take a few of these things kind of in order – so on the secrecy issue – that's not a bad point, but at the same time, a lot of negotiations like this that involve so many different actors that involve big geostrategic decisions have to be done in secret because if each time something's proposed, even if it's not going to be in the final product, you know, interest groups in like, their domestic constituency gets a hold of it and says, we can't support this at any cost whatsoever, then you'd never negotiate anything. Nothing would ever get across the line. Well, okay, two wanna-
0: points. Two points. One is other countries have – less secrecy than the United States. That's part of the reason why we know what's okay. going on. So we've taken this to to an extreme where even one of the congressmen wanted to know what was going on. Uh, uh, the USTR, uh, which is our trade negotiator, refused to tell them. Secondly, we let corporations be at the table. So we get their view, right. but we don't let a representative – of civil society. Somebody who cares about health and tobacco is not at the table. So Philip Morris is yelling, you have to protect us and the other voices in there. Thirdly, really important, the way we pass trade agreements is with fast track. We pass fast track. What does that mean? That means Congress has to vote up or down. And very difficult to so it means you can't amend
1: it. Amend it. They do know what's in it before they vote up or down. They,
0: but that everything is put there, and you so so if they put a provision like on cigarettes, if some congressman sees a big benefit for his constituents, say in an increase in exports of airplanes, he's not going to vote against it because of cigarettes. He'd be. Furious about it, if he could pass, raise an amendment, he would want that. And those in the other countries would want it. So if we had a parliamentarian group of all the countries together, it would pass virtually unanimously that we want to circumscribe cigarettes. But because of the way it's done, the democratic forces, not just in the United States, in all the countries, these are this is something all the people in all the countries want. And it's the special corporate interests that are dominating the interests of people in all the trading countries. So it used to be that it was one producer interest versus another. Now, unfortunately, too much of the negotiation is the producer interest in all the countries versus consumer interest, environmental interest, health interest in all the countries. And that changes the nature of of trade agreements today.
1: That's fair enough. But let me sort of delineate the fundamental tension as sort of I see it, right? Because I think you make some good points there. And also, I think it's possible to say that the investor state dispute settlements aren't ideal at all. Same thing with the intellectual patent protection. Same thing with with what's happening with the pharma, the longer exclusivity period. All of that, I think it's possible to see those things and say, yeah, those aren't good things. But at the same time, that does have to be balanced against some of the good things that the trade agreement would be likely to produce. And there have been some estimates of how much net wealth it would create. It's not huge, it's not a tremendous amount, but it's not really trivial either, right? So I I think my, it's my, isn't I, there here's here's my question, and then I'll and I'll and then I'll, and then I'll <laughs> let you respond. My question is, isn't there um, isn't there a risk of making the perfect the enemy of the good? No trade agreement like this that's this big that covers, that spans so many countries is ever going to be perfect. Don't we have to look at it and say, well, if the net benefits are positive, it's still a good thing to pass, even while we rail against the things in it that are negative or harmful?
0: First, I'm not sure that the net benefits are positive. Uh, you know, That's the point I made in the beginning, that we've already brought tariffs down to a very low level, trade barriers down to a very low level. So the the argument
1: here, I think, is that we would be importing competitive pressures and making the economy more productive, that it would increase the productivity growth of the economy. I
0: I think there's very little evidence uh, of that. Uh, So so the estimates – the, uh, the benefits have been pulled out of the air. You know, th- these are <laughs> not based on, on good models. Uh, th- th- these are really uh, made-up numbers. And if you look at the forecast made in many of the previous trade agreements, uh, we can see what fantasies uh, these are. I mean, th- th- these are what they hope for. And what's so striking is that those who are selling the f- trade agreement have come up with very modest numbers. So even the the advocates agree that this is not a big deal for our economy. You know, the, If we wanted, uh, we're talking about, uh, it's not about job creation. Let me, for the United States particularly, almost surely it would be net job destroying. You think uh, so? Oh, oh, very clearly. Let, let, let's think about it in, a, in, a, in the following way that any fair trade agreement is going to have an expansion of exports. Re- Roughly equal to imports. You know, no, no other country is going to say, OK, it's going to be one-sided. So if exports and imports increase roughly in tandem, then you ask, what is the labor intensity of the exports versus the labor intensity of the imports? Well, the goods that we're exporting are high-tech products that have very little labor. The goods that we're importing are things like textiles, very labor-intensive goods, So we'll be importing less of those goods. I'm sorry, we'll be importing more of those goods, losing jobs in those textile industries and getting more jobs in the export industry, the high-skill industry. Um, The net is going to be almost unambiguously negative. And in both this and the other uh, aspects of the agreement, big – Negative distributional consequences. Uh, the people who who are going to benefit are are the areas of our specialty, and our special uh, sp- specialty is high skill labor is going to go uh, demand is going to go up, low skill labor demand is going to go down. A country where the major problem today is inequality, that problem of inequality is going to get worse. And the problem is the Republicans have been even resisting. Trade assistance to help them adjust to uh, the loss of jobs. And we've seen that the people at the bottom have not gotten jobs when they lose jobs. You know, the standard neoliberal model that you refer to uh, is predicated on the fact that when you uh, have a trade agreement, you move from low productivity jobs to high productivity jobs. You, you restructure the economy to reflect your comparative advantage. What happens, what is happening now in the United States is you move from low productivity sectors to zero productivity unemployment. And that doesn't increase the performance of any economy.
1: Okay, I wanna get to the next question because we're actually running out of time. uh, So we're probably not gonna be able to cover all three, but I I wanna ask this question. It's about Europe. You've been very much an anti-austerity advocate for the last few years. You've written a lot of columns this year on Greece? This question actually it comes from a colleague. He was referencing an article that it was in Politico not long ago, blaming essentially the American economics uh, commentariat, I guess you might call it, saying that, no, we understand that you're against austerity, that you even suggest that possibly Greece would be better off outside of the Euro. But what about the actual politicians who are meant to be negotiating for this? And I think the question, I think the article itself was about the idea that do you risk giving intellectual cover to politicians who don't really know what they're doing, in other words, who don't know how to use this kind of leverage in a way that's helpful to get a better deal? Do you want to just respond to that? Because I actually have a broader question about the extent to which economists should be making, uh, I guess, political uh, recommendations versus just sticking to the economics. What do you think?
0: Well, the programs that have been imposed, say, on Greece – have been largely negotiated by finance ministries. And what's striking is how few economists there are in the position of finance ministry in the countries of Europe. Uh, Greece had a a very good economist. They still have a very good economist. They have a new finance minister, and, and he understands economics well. But the people he's negotiating with are lawyers or people, you know, can be very bright, but they don't understand some basic economics. So that makes it extraordinarily difficult to negotiate, because you can't say, oh, you know, if we do this rather than that, it will get you what you want, but also will help the economy do better. So uh, there's this blind faith that somehow if you get the primary deficit down, to the point where it's a primary surplus, the economy will grow. And the evidence is quite the contrary. And uh, what's so striking is if you look at the forecast made by the Troika, they are abysmal. Yeah. They are based on their model. Their model is drawn out of the air, not based on sound economics. Uh, you know, I, te- I kid my students. I say if you came in with those kinds of forecasting errors, you would get a – <laughs> you know, I would debate whether it's a D minus or an F, but you would not get a passing grade. Right. Uh, and if you did that one year, I would be very concerned. Two years, you know, three, four years, you're out of my class. You know, you obviously can't learn, but poor Greece can't tell It's it's negotiating partners. You know, you haven't done a very good job in forecasting. And the reason the economy has gone down is not because we didn't do what you told us. It's because we did do what you told us. You know, the central thing for macroeconomics is the fiscal stance, the, the primary surplus. Greece changed that from a 10% deficit to a 1% surplus, that's why it has gone into depression. Let me make it clear. It's in depression. Yeah. Uh, unemployment, 25 percent. Youth unemployment, 50 to 60 percent. Would be worse if uh, – except for so many of the young, talented Greeks have moved to London and to other places in uh, Europe and in Australia around the world.
1: Okay, to the last question then, because going back to this question of, I guess, positive versus normative economics, this has always kind of fascinated me. So you've obviously got a long, huge body of work, of your analytical work, of your you know, your work on asymmetric information and information economics in general, but also if you look at the the Roosevelt Institute report, for instance, you're also very much an advocate for certain ideas. There's a lot of mention of certain values in the report, and that's partly... What you base a lot of your columns on as well, what do you think an economist should consider when contemplating the leap from their analytical work, positive economics, to their advocacy in a sense, normative economics? Well, I think
0: first and foremost, uh, an economist has to do the best he can to describe what will happen if you undertake different policies. And uh, that – the description – Actually, has a lot of information in it that reflects values. Let me explain what I mean. So, uh, the troika clearly uh, misanalyzed uh, what was going to happen if their policies were pursued. It underestimated the macroeconomic consequences of moving from to a primary surplus and. Uh, there's going to continue to be a depression so long as they demand that high level, almost a, you know, unacceptably high level of 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 uh, primary surplus. So that's a descriptive statement. If you don't analyze correctly the consequences of certain actions, how can you make judgments? So economists do debate about questions like that. What are the uh, descriptive consequences? You know, describing here is how. How uh, this particular change in labor market law will play out, uh, and there's been debates about that. You know, in, in some countries they say, well, uh, Italy. There's a discussion: Do we need more labor market reform because employers can already choose a menu of contracts from very flexible to very rigid, so they're not compelled to have long-term contracts. They can have short-term contracts. They've already, you know, we've done that kind of reform in the past. So, So there are these questions of what will be the consequences. But then comes the question of how do we describe those consequences? If you focus just on GDP, then that's what people will be thinking about. But if you say, by the way, one of the consequences of... These set of policies is that the fraction of the population who is in poverty will go from three percent to twenty percent. The fraction of children you know innocent victims they are they aren't uh they are you know you can 't say that they're slacking off on paying taxes they're you know that they 're not working hard enough innocent victims of whatever uh system that they 're a part of childhood poverty will go up from percent to 25 percent. Those are important statistics. What worries me is that too often we focus just on one number, GDP. We don't focus on presenting an array of statistics that gives a fuller view of what is happening to our society. That's where values come in. Values come in because I care about inequality. There are some people who say, oh, it doesn't matter who gets the income. GDP is the only thing that's important, and therefore I'll only look at GDP. Let me tell you, I don't think any democratic society has that attitude. I think in democracies, people care about what happens to not only, you know, it's not interesting if Bill Gates is doing very well, but they also want to know what's happening to poverty, what's happening to somebody in the middle. So that's, in a way, I view as a a fundamental aspect of where the economist plays both a descriptive and normative role, saying here are things that at least some people in our society believe is important. And if you don't give them those numbers, you can't have that meaningful democratic
1: political debate. Joe Stiglitz, thanks so much for talking to the Financial Times. Thank you. And that's all the time we have left. Thanks again for listening. We'd love to hear what you thought of this episode and suggestions for future episodes. So send us an email to alphachat at ft.com or leave us a message by calling 917-551-5012. You can also tweet me directly at Cardiff Garcia. Thanks so much. The producer and editor of this podcast is the amazing Amy Keene. The dictionary has run out of superlatives to describe her with. Thanks, Amy.
2: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources